Turning Tides is an Antics Entertainment affiliate. You can find us on social media at The Turning Tides Podcast on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, and at Turning Tides Pod on Twitter. For more information, or if you're interested in sponsoring the podcast, please contact us at the turning tides podcast at gmail.com thanks for listening warning this episode of turning tides contains depictions of suicide murder rape genocide war violence and racism the disasters which rocked italy during the late 19th century were innumerable Amongst them were military setbacks and defeats in the parts of Africa which Italy attempted to colonize, severe economic strain, civil violence on the Italian mainland, and rank corruption which pervaded all areas of personal and political life. This diabolical cocktail would eventually bring about the start of Italian fascism, but for now, the forces of parliamentary liberal democracy were attempting to keep the lid on the simmering tensions across Italy. In 1896, the Battle of Adwa shattered the illusions of imperialists like Francesco Crispi. This defeat instilled bitterness and resentment in the minds of the younger generations. Following the Bava Baccarus massacre and the assassination of King Umberto I, Italy was in a state of ineffectual authoritarianism. Luigi Pelù was ruling with an iron fist alongside the new king, Victor Emmanuel III. Pelù's administration's failure brought Italy back under the control of a left-center coalition they would attempt to form their policy around popular sentiment. Under their initial leader, Giuseppe Zanardelli, the left center proved too uncompromising to maintain a majority coalition for long. However, Zanardelli managed to pass several well-meaning reforms while in office. He brought spending under control while reducing the outrageous taxes on foodstuffs. When strikes broke out, he refused to send in the army as his predecessors had done. Instead, he told complaining landowners that they should try plowing their land for a day and see if they still think the wages they paid were sufficient. For all these admirable qualities, Zanardelli was still a nationalist and he increased military appropriations significantly. This infuriated the small, determined group of socialists in Parliament, and they launched a massive investigation into allegations of corruption. Their official paper, Avanti, discovered vast improprieties, and rather than risk a vote of no confidence, Zenardelli resigned. His successor was the once disgraced, now reinstated, Giovanni Giolitti, he would come to dominate Italian politics for more than a decade and has one of the most controversial reputations of any modern politician. Corrupt, but compassionate. Authoritarian, but liberal. Puppet master, but clear-sighted. Giolitti 
was the enigma wrapped in a riddle which defined Italy as a state during this time. He would guide Italy into economic prosperity, but find himself overwhelmed by the currents of Italian political life. Amongst these currents were three separate massive forces which were asserting themselves across the peninsula. They were socialism, clericalism, and nationalism. Socialism was gaining admirers and adherents all the time. People on the left were disillusioned with the rhetoric of Republicans, Radicals, and Mazzinians. The main goal for early Italian socialists was to tap into this vibrant underbelly of Italian political life. The 1890s saw the rise of the first political parties which espoused socialist ideals while the 1900s saw them come into their own as a true political force in Parliament. By the end of this period, over 100 deputies would belong to parties which espoused socialist ideals. Alongside socialism, trade unionism grew in step. In 1906, left-leaning trade unions across Italy formed into a general confederation of labor. One of the main leaders of early Italian socialism was Filippo Turati. Christopher Duggan says he believed, quote, that the nation's moral problems could also be solved by radically transforming the material base of society, unquote. It was Turati's self-appointed job to lead his countrymen toward the true light of socialism. He would do this by emulating all that he despised, namely the church. His early socialist disciples were to turn themselves into, quote, new beings, a new and superior race, unquote. They would go forth preaching their new religion to the poor, while basing their socialist philosophy and Catholic dogmas. As a result, Italian socialism took on a unique quasi-religious tone. Socialists would use public meetings, puppet shows, comedies, and tragedies to convey their view of the world. Moderate socialists pushed for a program of minimalism, where social reform would lay the groundwork for a socialist society. Turati compared this approach to, quote, fattening up the turkey for the dinner table, unquote. However, there was a hardcore group of maximalists who called for immediate and violent social revolution. They were supported in their aims by the philosophical works of Jorges Sorel, as well as an extremely violent Italian syndicalist movement. The syndicalists believed in trade unionism and wanted to use the union's power and growing influence to eventually overthrow capitalist notions like liberty and parliament. They began their dress rehearsal for revolution in 1904, calling for the first of many general strikes. Throughout the Italian industrial heartland, production ceased. Venice was practically cut off from the outside world because the gondoliers were striking. Instead of meeting the strike with force, Gioletti seized the moment, dissolved Parliament, and called for new elections. The results showed victory for Gioletti's party, while the hard left lost several seats in Parliament. 
these seats were usurped by the rising tide of clericalism. Giolitti recognized the potentially dangerous force which socialism could become. To counter, he endeavored to vastly increase the social responsibility which the Italian state bore. Spending on public works increased, while development toward southern districts was made a priority. Most importantly, Giolitti would not permit his government to take sides in labor disputes. This vastly increased the number of work actions across the nation, as workers felt more secure in marching for their economic rights without suffering state reprisals. In turn, employers raised wages, and prosperity increased in all sectors. Giolitti did not consider this bowing to the hard left. He saw mediocre social reform as an opportunity to bolster the conservative spirit which he believed pervaded the Italian countryside. He said, quote, The classes in power spend enormous sums on themselves and their own interests while obtaining the money almost entirely from the poorer sectors of society. I deplore as much as anyone the struggle between the classes, but at least let us be fair and ask who started it, unquote. His words are entirely appropriate. Hundreds of thousands lived in swamp-like conditions. Illiteracy affected 50% of the population, and many workers made less than they had 30 years previous. At these outrageous facts, Giolitti argued, quote, countries which have high wages are at the head of industrial progress, a period of social justice would recall the common people back to their affection for our institution. Unquote. On the other hand, Giolitti believed railway workers and state employees had no right to strike. When called an opportunist over his political stances by Turati, Giolitti took it as a compliment. Throughout its early history, the Italian state and the Roman Catholic Church had been at odds. The Church actively sought independence from the state of Italy and demanded its temporal rights reasserted. Since unification, the Church had barred all quote-unquote good Catholics from voting in national elections. However, the rise of secular socialism gave the papacy pause— Giolitti attempted to remain as hands-off in papal matters as he did in labor disputes. He famously said, quote, Church and state are two parallel lines which ought never to meet, unquote. The papacy, meanwhile, was showing a surprising elasticity in dealing with the new century, helped along by Popes Leo XIII and Benedict XV. They were more concerned about the Red Revolution which was sweeping the countryside, and they were willing to work with the liberal Italian government if it meant launching an offensive against socialism. They targeted socialist strongholds across the country, and in order to counteract some of their more left-leaning priests, they created what Christopher Duggan called, quote, three unions dealing with propaganda, socioeconomic affairs, and elections, under the umbrella heading of Catholic Action, unquote. Catholic Action launched attacks on all things considered blights of modernism. 
they claim the king of Italy was an atheist and that, quote, the only church he built was the Jewish synagogue in Rome, unquote. The insertion of clericalism would, in the words of Dennis Mack Smith, quote, upset the whole shape of Italian politics, unquote. Following the suicide of one of his ministers who was accused of corruption, Giolitti saw his out and resigned as prime minister. As his house of cards collapsed, Giolitti calmly began setting up a new stack. Two ineffectual governments of the center-left and center-right followed, and both resigned after economic and labor disputes. This left Giolitti in charge for a third time. To his supporters, he was a master strategist. To his enemies, he was, quote, the minister of the underworld, unquote. His latest institution would last for three years, and it would be the longest an Italian prime minister would remain in office for a generation to come. During his time in office, Giolitti intended to pass several ambitious reforms, while still using authoritarianism to crack down on his political enemies and rig elections. Regardless, Italy was improving economically by all metrics. The interest on government bonds shot down, and this gave the state more room to invest in modernizing agriculture and industry. Already a young man during this time, Benito Amilcare Andrea Mussolini was born in the small Romagna town of Predapio. Mussolini's mother was a deeply religious woman, while his father was a blacksmith as well as an atheist and a socialist. Mussolini was named after Benito Juarez, former Mexican president, Amilcare Cipriani, a Romanian native and anarchist hero, and Andrea Costa, the founder of Italy's first socialist party. Throughout his early years, Mussolini was an incredibly violent boy. Assaults and crime were the norm in his hometown, and in his autobiography, Mussolini even recalls raping someone. Mussolini was kicked out of repeated seminaries and religious schools. He gravitated toward revolutionary socialism, not because he believed in the dialectic and class antagonisms, but because he understood that socialism could be used as a mass rallying force for political power. He detested parliament and any socialists who would dare work with Giolitti's government. He called these people practitioners of a, quote, spineless socialoid ideology, unquote. By 1909, Mussolini was drifting inexorably toward nationalism, saying, quote, the creation of the Italian soul is a superb mission, unquote. Nationalism was nothing new to Italian shores. Early nationalists believed it was Italy's responsibility to quote-unquote civilize other nations and claimed it was the country's destiny to win glory through military conquest. The nationalist cause had fallen out of favor with the disaster that was Francesco Crispi's premiership. It had found new life in the poems and speeches of Gabriel D'Annunzio. By far his most well-known literary achievement was the play Le Nave, or the ship. Christopher Duggan says the play was, quote, set in Venice in A.D. 522, when the city was asserting its independence from the rule of the emperor of Byzantium. It tells the story of two brothers, Marco and Sergio, 
who seize power by murdering the male members of the leading imperial family. Unquote. In the play, Basiliola, the sister of the executed power brokers, is determined to seek vengeance. She strips naked for the brothers and drives them both wild with lust. In the inevitable fallout, Marco stabs and kills his brother Sergio. Marco decides to travel the world in a great Venetian ship and partake in heroic deeds in the name of the city in order to repent. In the most famous line, Marco proclaims, quote, fit out the prow and set sail for the world, unquote. Before departing, Marco realizes he has been duped by Bisiliola and attempts to nail her to his boat in place of a figurehead. She breaks free from her captors and casts herself into the flames of a sacrificial pillar. The symbolism is heavy-handed and chauvinistic, and it shines a light on the mindset of D'Annunzio, who celebrated violence and all that was excessive. Nationalists, irredentists, and jingoists were latching onto writers like D'Annunzio, seeing this far-right nationalist movement as the perfect counter to the growth of socialism. When given the two choices, the liberals in the middle would time and again choose the far right. Gioletti was one of these liberals. He sided with early nationalist expressions throughout this period. In 1913, he said, quote, We cannot offer paradise in heaven like our Catholic colleagues, nor can we offer paradise on earth like our socialist colleagues. But we do have a flame, an ideal the flame of idealism at the heart of Italian liberalism is patriotism, love of the fatherland, unquote. The main outlets for nationalism were countless political journals and a wellspring of youthful energy from university students. In the words of Christopher Duggan, nationalists, quote, hated parliament, loathed the corruption of the capital, saw socialism as dangerous, devoid of higher spiritual values, and selfish." Unquote. The supreme issue of Italy through this time still lay in the vast socio-economic differences between the rapidly industrializing North and the highly provincial South. This fact has been conveniently swept under the rug by Italian politicians for decades. Northerners simply believed the Southerners were lazy. They accused Southern politicians of inventing malaria and its associated symptoms as a way to escape work. Southerners found their own solution to Northern apathy in the form of mass migration. For the average Southern Italian, there were two choices, quiet resignation or abandoning all for a new life. Each had its own risks. In the end, millions decided to brave the stormy Atlantic Ocean only to find racism and xenophobia on American shores. Those who stayed faced as much uncertainty, and many chose to emigrate to Milan or other northern Italian cities. In Naples and Sicily, criminal groups like the Camorra and the Mafia ran the unofficial business of the towns. They exacted their justice outside the confines of the law, and often with the law's not-so-subtle co-signature. Dennis Max Smith contends, quote, The Southern problem was basically a problem of poverty, unquote. 
This cycle of poverty begot more poverty and violence, and it was only exacerbated by Northerners, who did everything they could to blame the South's poverty on the Southern peasant. As if matters couldn't become worse, the earth itself seemed to be conspiring against Southern Italy. Years of deforestation, which was caused by the construction of the Italian railway, as well as the burgeoning lumber industry, had left the Italian countryside desolate. These forests had once fed, given refuge, and provided a living for millions of Italians throughout history. The forests also kept thousands of tons of dirt stuck to the earth. This dirt, which was now liberated from its holdings, began to cause mudslides. These mudslides and landslides numbered in the thousands, as whole villages were swept away through sheer force of nature. This was a man-made ecological disaster, which continues to pervade southern Italy to this day. In 2022, Italian officials came to the conclusion that up to 94% of the country's municipalities are in danger of, quote, flooding, landslides, and soil erosion, unquote. Calabria, the southernmost of Italy's mainland provinces, was especially home to a large amount of devastation throughout the early 1900s. The largest problem there was the Earth's natural fault lines. Massive earthquakes, which usually induced tsunamis, rocked the province in 1905 and 1907. The worst was in 1908. A 7.1 magnitude earthquake began in the early hours of the day on December 28th in the Straits of Messina. Many thousands were buried in their homes while they were still asleep. Then, the tsunami came. The shoreline in Reggio Calabria receded a horrifying 70 feet, and in a matter of moments the town's bustling shoreline was destroyed. Tens of thousands died. Relief efforts were hampered by government incompetence, and millions of dollars, which was supposed to go to disaster victims, ended up lining the pockets of so-called charity organizers. Many parts of southern Italy remained in disrepair well into the 1940s. Is it any wonder that with violence and indifference facing them at every step, nine million people left Italy? Although many Italians left, many returned to their homeland with heavier pockets. These Americani brought back more money in a year of work than most Italians made in a decade. They also brought American ideals about the way the government should run with them. Those who stayed in the New World sent money back to their loved ones, equating to 500 million lire a year. With this infusion of money from emigrant Italians, rising wages, and expanding industry, Italy sought to reclaim the marshlands outside of Rome and Ferrara. These places were natural breeding grounds for mosquitoes, which carried malaria. Throughout the 1900s, production figures doubled for many industries, in spite of the fact that strikes still permeated Italian labor life. The state treasury was boasting positive returns for three successive years. In the realm of trade, Dennis Mack Smith says, quote, Imports rose by 61% in value between 1901 and 1913, 
and exports by 47%. Unquote. In the sciences, Guglielmo Marconi was making strides toward improving telegraphic technology, and in 1909 he would win the Nobel Peace Prize for his work. In later years, Marconi would become a card-carrying fascist and actively conspire with fascist party leaders to deny his Jewish colleagues work in universities. As World War I began, Italy could boast that they produced 18,000 cars a year, while companies like Alfa Romeo specialized in producing racing cars and Pirelli specialized in making world-class tires. Giolitti claimed, quote, No other people had in so short a period of time gone through such a transformation politically, morally, and economically, unquote. He wasn't wrong. Besides Japan, no other country in the world had a higher growth rate than Italy. In spite of Italy's increasing economic prosperity, the loud voices of the far right were finding influential comrades in the royal court and in the high ranks of the military. Big business and industrial magnates gave generously to early nationalists in the hopes of using this movement to effectively counter the spread of socialism. Nationalists were becoming increasingly vocal about the terre irredenti, or the Italian land still under foreign control. On top of this, they wanted to claim others' land as their own. D'Annunzio wrote, quote, Africa is only the whetstone on which we Italians shall sharpen our sword for a supreme conquest in the unknown future, unquote. As the 1910s began, all signs pointed toward an Italian invasion. The only question remaining was where the Italians would attempt to conquer first. Following attempts by Giolitti to raise the income tax and death duties, his government majority fractured and he was forced to resign. His third term in office ended as it had for many Italian politicians before him. The following two governments were weak, poorly built coalitions of the center-right and center-left. The Italian parliament turned once more to, you know who, Giolitti. He began his fourth term as premier. His main goal this time around was to vastly increase the number of people eligible to vote. All men over 30 and all who served in the armed forces were enfranchised. This included many illiterates, so ballots now included pictures for associated parties. Women were still not allowed to vote, although many far-left and center-right politicians supported women's suffrage. Center-right candidates supported women's suffrage because they believed women would choose Catholic or conservative candidates over socialists every day of the week. Following World War II, they were proved right, as female voters gave the Catholic Party of Italy several crucial majorities. Giolitti was by no means a genuine reformer. While more people could vote, it now became easier to win if you knew how to manipulate Italian elections. Giolitti was the king of electoral manipulation. There are countless examples of voter fraud, intimidation, and even votes given to heads of cattle. This created a truly corrupt system. 
in which mayors ran most local elections to the benefit of Giolitti and his chosen candidates. Dennis Mack Smith concludes, quote, The liberals were too self-assured to yield willingly, and since the socialists were too doctrinaire to collaborate, it was the fascists who eventually gained, unquote. Giolitti also attempted to reform education during his fourth term. Since the Copino Act of 1877, there had been no substantial reforms within the educational system of Italy. This had damaging effects on the intellectual life of the nation. Although Italy was largely illiterate, the country also boasted the largest population of college graduates in all of Europe. There was an overflow of graduates with degrees in education, medicine, and law. It was calculated that there was a lawyer for every 1,300 people in Italy, while in Sardinia, there was a lawsuit pending for every third inhabitant. This was costly and inefficient, to say the least. Teachers, meanwhile, lived a semi-nomadic existence traveling across the country in search of work. Italian law dictated that every six years, teachers were to receive a 10% raise. Instead of granting this meager concession, municipal authorities simply let the teacher go after six years and hired someone they could pay at the starting rate. Unfortunately, this new educational reform barely had enough time to cement itself into Italian life before World War I devastated any plans of betterment. The Triplice, or Triple Alliance of Austria, Hungary, Germany, and Italy, had been wearing thin for some time now. In fact, many attempts were made by Britain, France, and Russia to court Italian favor. These attempts were reciprocated by Italian statesmen in several major ways. In 1896, Italy formally recognized the annexation of Tunisia by France. In 1900, the Italian fleet made a goodwill stopover in Toulon. In 1902, Italy went as far as to claim that if France were attacked or felt the need to declare war, Italy would remain strictly neutral. This upset German diplomats who accused Italy of quote-unquote adultery. In spite of these small gestures of reconciliation between Italy and the Entente, the Triple Alliance was continually renewed through successive Italian governments. Italy relied on Germany for a huge amount of their machinery, and a large portion of Italian businesses were funded by German capital. The main source of tension truly existed between Italy and Austria-Hungary. In 1908, Austria formally annexed Bosnia and Herzegovina. This infuriated Italy, as the terms of their alliance clearly stated that any territorial aggrandizement by Austria in the Balkans should be countered with the return of Italian provinces to Italy in Dalmatia, Istria, or the Trentino. However, the complaints of Italian diplomats in Vienna fell on deaf ears. Italy would receive zero Habsburg territory. In response, Italy signed an official agreement with Tsarist Russia, which stipulated that Italy and Russia would support one another if faced with further Austrian aggrandizement in the Balkans. The shallow friendship between Italy and Austria was nearing its end, while Italy's relations with the Entente were on the rise. Throughout this period, 
jingoism was sweeping the world, the scramble to colonize Africa was still in full swing, and nations began to use evolutionary biology to support their invasion and decimation of native African, Asian, and Oceanic peoples. Italian designs became clear to everyone when, in 1907, the Pope formally recognized Italy as a, quote, protecting power for Catholics in Turkey, unquote. Turkey, which was also known as the Ottoman Empire, was in the process of modernizing under the authoritarian eyes of the CUP, as we know them, the Young Turks. Under the leadership of men like Enver Pasha and Mustafa Kemal, Turkey was attempting to become a leading world power once more. Throughout the 16th century, they were the greatest nation in all of Europe, and perhaps the world, surpassing the meager wealth of Spain, France, and England. Following hundreds of years of decline, the Ottoman state was now considered the sick man of Europe. In successive wars, Ottoman influence in Europe slowly deteriorated, the Ottoman state now controlled a small portion of Europe's Balkan territories. Ottoman officials referred to these territories as Rumelia, or the land of the Romans. In addition to these territories, the Ottoman Empire controlled modern-day Libya, which was broken into several provinces or vilayets during this time. This included the vilayets of Tripolitania to the west, Fezzan to the south, and Cyrenaica to the east. This land was inhabited by Bedouin and Arab peoples for time immemorial. It was a harsh, desert existence, but the people of these regions found sustenance around inland oases and used the lucrative camel routes through the desert to acquire and sell goods. The impending Italian invasion would destroy the livelihoods of these people and create a vortex of violence which is ongoing in modern-day Libya. The invasion would also shape the lives of the many people who inhabited what the Ottomans called the White Sea Islands. Today, these islands are referred to as the Dodecanese Islands of Greece. In antiquity, they were called the Sporides. From Crete to Rhodes, and Leros to Patmos, these hundreds of islands were home to thousands of Greek people who longed for the day when they would return to the Greek fold with which they identified. Unfortunately for these islanders, the new Greek state was created without any thought for them. If these islands were attacked, the task of defending them would simply be too much for the Ottoman navy to bear. In the previous decades, the naval wing of the Ottoman armed forces was completely neglected by the feckless sultan, Abdulhamid II. He believed the navy was the chief source of rebelliousness in his empire and sought to squash it through neglect. His solution was to let the once great Ottoman navy decay and fall apart. In an empire which was mostly coastline, this was an unbelievably poor choice. The overthrow of the Ottoman government by the CUP was seen by many in the Turkish heartland as a step in the right direction toward liberal constitutionalism. However, the young Turks believed in an uncompromising view of citizenship. Previously, other nationalities and religions within the empire were not required to serve in the army. Instead, they were given special taxes and certain privileges. The CUP wished to change this and give all citizens of the empire the same rights. 
This deeply upset the many nationalities residing inside the Ottoman domain, and it became the central gripe of its disparate peoples. One of the first acts of the new sultan, Mehmed V, was to buy old German-designed ships in the hopes of increasing Turkey's naval force. Although they had increased the size of their fleet, the sailors were no more proficient than they were before. Great Britain had hundreds of years of naval acumen under its belt, and so they dispatched several naval officers in an attempt to bolster the Ottoman fleet and thereby maintain a balance of power. The Ottoman Empire's new vessels would prove relatively useless in naval engagements against the much stronger Italian fleet, and would spend most of the war docked in harbor. Italian designs on the North African coast are well documented. Since Roman times, Italians have lived, worked, and died along the southern Mediterranean. Before Rome was even an empire, it used North Africa as a base for colonization. In the new Italian state, attempts were made to emulate this geopolitical relationship. However, in the late 19th century, the failure of Italian diplomatic overtures in Tunisia had angered Italian politicians and nationalists who had been trying to economically penetrate the North African state for decades. Italians feared that they would lose out on territory once more, this time to their German allies. Mazzini was one of the first Italian patriots to openly make the assertion that the Roman Empire should be emulated. He said, quote, Tunis, Tripoli, and the Cyrenaica belong to that part of Africa up to the Atlas Mountains that truly fits the European system. Already in the past, the flag of Rome was unfurled on top of the Atlas Mountains. The Mediterranean became known as Mare Nostrum, Our Sea, unquote. Beyond these shallow historical arguments, a base in North Africa was thought to greatly strengthen the defenses of mainland Italy, with Tobruk being home to one of the great natural harbors in the area. The first step in this colonial action was for Italian diplomats to reach assurances with the rest of Europe. First, the Germans gave their support. Next, the Austrians gave their begrudging acquiescence. The hard part would prove to be garnering support from France and Great Britain, as both had interests in the Ottoman state. France would finally submit, but with a caveat. Italy had to recognize their colonies in Chad and Central Africa. Italians were under the erroneous impression that once the vast desert of Libya was claimed by Europeans, the land would magically revert back to a garden of plenty, as it was in Roman times. This claim was supported by statesmen, economists, and everyday Italians. In fact, this last group was promised vast swathes of land in Libya, and once colonization was completed, the former vilayet was promised to become a new home for emigrating Italians. The final linchpin to invasion lay with the British agreeing. The British had vast naval armaments in Cyprus and Malta, and could effectively swamp the Italian mainland if they so chose. Italy received their tacit agreement from Britain, which stated, quote, His Britannic Majesty's government have no aggressive or ambitious designs in regard to Tripoli. If at any time an alteration of the status quo should take place, 
it would be their object that, so far as compatible with the obligations resulting from the treaties, which at present form part of the public law of Europe, such alteration should be in conformity with Italian interests. Unquote. As with Tunisia, Italy's initial forays into undermining Ottoman power in Libya were economical. Italian businesses and banks were instrumental in the distribution of Italian capital into Libyan markets. Exports to Italy were increased, and schools began teaching the Italian language to such an extent that, after Arabic, Italy was the second most spoken language. The clearest example of peaceful penetration, Penetration Pacifica, was the Bank of the Holy Seal, or the Banco di Roma. With a healthy investment of 5 million lire, the bank was instrumental in subverting Ottoman power in the region. They also laid the groundwork for the initial colonization of the fertile areas by Italian entrepreneurs. When the Italians arrived, they ran into reality. Charles Wellington Furlong wrote of Tripoli and its environs, quote, Tripoli is a land of contrasts. Rains, which turn the dry wadis, which are riverbeds, into raging torrents and cause the country to blossom overnight. Then, month after month without a shower over the parched land. Suffocating days and cool nights, full harvests one year, famine the next. Without a breath of air, heat saturated, yellow sand wastes bank against a sky of violet blue. Unquote. In the face of this peaceful penetration, the young Turks put up roadblocks designed to reassert Ottoman authority in the area. They demanded all economic concessions to Italy be rescinded and that future projects would be doled out to nations which were competing with Italy. Italians who were in the throes of hysterical nationalism saw this assertion of Ottoman national sovereignty as a challenge to their designs. Italy was now on the warpath. Both center parties adopted nationalist positions, and in the coming election, nationalists would gain seats in Parliament, making them another voice for the hard right. Italian politicians were understandably wary of this new strain of militarism. Giolitti considered war useless. Nevertheless, he latched on to popular sentiment instead of standing by his beliefs. If war began, he wanted to make sure to contain the war to North Africa. Giolitti was obviously nervous. He said pathetically, quote, What if after we attack Turkey, the Balkans move? And what if a Balkan war provokes a clash between the two groups of powers and a European war? Is it wise that we saddle ourselves with the responsibility for setting fire to the powder? Unquote. Regardless. Giolitti and the Italian government believed there was such a thing as a, quote, relatively cheap colonial war, unquote. In May 1911, the Agadir crisis threatened such a European war. German battleships cruised off the coast of Morocco to intimidate French troops stationed there. This was done in the hopes of Germany being granted concessions elsewhere in Africa. Germany's diplomatic approach was described by Edward Crankshaw as, quote, to stamp on his neighbor's foot and display a grieved surprise if he received a kick in return. 
This aggressive incident sent alarm bells ringing throughout Europe, as tension ramped up between the belligerents. Italy now felt compelled to act. If they did not, it was felt that Germany would seize the initiative from under them, as the French had with Tunisia and as Britain had with Egypt. Italian yellow journalism was proving instrumental in bolstering the calls for war. Far-right papers, as well as liberal economic reviews, all believed war would be a solvent to the woes plaguing Italy. Government officials believed they could invade and conquer Libya relatively easily. They also falsely believed that the local population would view the Italian army as liberators. Before the invasion, Italy was right to be optimistic. There was no means of supplying Libya once a blockade was put in place, and there were few Ottoman regulars in Libya. The division which usually garrisoned the area was split up to put down the rebellions in Yemen. In the words of Charles Stevenson, quote, Public opinion in Italy, as expressed by the press, would cause the downfall of the government if it failed to do in Tripoli what it perceived France was likely to do in Morocco, unquote. On September 15, 1912, Italian politicians agreed war would begin in November. Almost immediately, the timetables for invasion were pushed up. October would be the new official beginning. The initial objectives for the campaign were the main ports and cities on the coast. They hoped this would neutralize any Ottoman resistance, while also securing supplies by sea. Occupation of the interior would happen at a later date. Altogether, it was deemed no more than 40,000 troops would be necessary to pacify a country five times the size of Italy. The main masterminds behind the invasion of Libya were ministers of war Paolo Spingardi and chief of staff Albert Polio. They were in the process of modernizing and re-equipping the army when the calls for invasion were issued. Nevertheless, the Italians were able to accurately predict Ottoman numbers in Libya, having created an intelligence section called the Fissio Uno. In total, the Ottoman Empire had approximately 6,000 regular infantry throughout Libya. This did not include territorial troops or local militia bands which were deemed negligible. For reasons which remain a mystery, the Ottoman authorities kept believing the lie that Italy was not about to invade. All they sent to their men in the field were 20,000 1893 rifles and a few pieces of light artillery. In reality, it's fair to assume the Ottomans had plenty of issues elsewhere, and the men simply weren't available for transport. Against hope, Ottoman diplomats begged for peace. On the eve of war, they said the Italians could take the whole province in all but name. They just needed to claim the Ottomans were still nominally in control. This agreement would have been much the same agreement the Ottomans had with Great Britain regarding Egypt. This would have saved hundreds of thousands of lives and 40 years of incessant warfare and atrocities. But Italy refused. Charles Stevenson says, quote, No reply could have satisfied them. They wanted a war as a matter of policy in order to satisfy public opinion. Unquote. On September 28, 1911, a state of war existed between the Ottoman Empire and the Kingdom of Italy. Stevenson continues, quote, 
there is an Arabic saying to the effect that he who takes his donkey up a minaret must take it down again. Italy carried their donkey to the very top. They were to discover that getting it down again was a somewhat more complex and infinitely more arduous task. Unquote. An hour into the war, a diplomatic incident between Italy and Austria occurred. The Duke of Abruzzi was in command of a flotilla of five destroyers, which happened upon two Ottoman torpedo boats on the eastern coast of the Ionian Sea. The Italians moved to attack, while the Ottomans moved to flee. Ottoman boats took refuge in the coastal town of Provesa, which is today Greece. The town was protected by ancient fortifications dating back to the 15th century. Following nighttime reconnaissance, the morning brought action. Two of the Italian destroyers ran the gauntlet, surprising the Ottoman fort defenses. The two Ottoman ships were swiftly sunk, but this minor naval skirmish sent shockwaves to Vienna. While this was happening along the coast, Albania was in the middle of a violent uprising to assert their national sovereignty against the Ottomans. This situation was considered counter to Austrian interests, and they feared Russia or Italy would gain from a free Albania. After all, Austrian policy had been to keep a lid on the Balkans while acquiring land for themselves whenever they saw fit. They launched an official diplomatic complaint against Italian military actions on the Ionian coast. The Italians backed down, they moved their navy away from the Balkans and were further reminded of their little brother status in the Triple Alliance. This incident might seem mild, but it would go on to influence Italy to join France, Britain, and Russia against their former allies in 1915. As war began, all the worst parts of the Italian state bubbled to the surface. Religious Italians were framing the conflict as a crusade against Islam. Muslims across the world responded in solidarity against the Italian invasion. This included countless British subjects in India, Egypt, and across their Asian holdings. This concerned British officials, but they felt hamstrung to support Italy, in the hopes of dismantling the Triple Alliance. If Italy and Austria's navy were to combine, they would prove a huge hindrance to British lines of communication. Germany was aware of these overtures, and they were in the process of courting the Turkish state to become the new junior member of the pact. Regardless, the Ottomans would be alone for the fight against Italy. When their diplomats sought aid, they were told to, quote, give way gracefully, unquote. Ottoman pride was averse to giving a single inch of land to a European invader. Luckily for the Ottoman armed forces, they had several officers on the ground in Libya and in transit who were intent on defending themselves and impeding the Italian invasion. Meanwhile, the Italian soldiers were determined to stymie and blockade as much of the Ottoman lands as they could without receiving international blowback. One place in which they had clear success was along the Yemeni coast. Italian naval units based in Eritrea used the dynamic leadership of Giovanni Serini Ferroni to easily maintain a blockade of most of Yemen's coast. Additionally, they supported local rebellions, which aided them in causing discord within the country's borders. 
As October began, preliminary attacks against Tripoli began in earnest. Italian naval units dredged up and cut the Malta-Tripoli telegraph line, leaving western Libya with no connection to the outside world. Almost immediately, Ottoman forces on the ground began withdrawing from the major city centers. They were determined to wage a guerrilla war from the interior, living off the land and ambushing Italian patrols. There was no real way to defend Tripoli, so the decision to disperse into the countryside was the only tactical choice to be made. Either way, the city would not formally surrender. Italian naval units began firing on the medieval Tripoli defenses on October 3rd and very quickly silenced any resistance from both forts. While it was ordered that the city not be bombarded, stray shells found their way into the city and fires began. The population of Tripoli was either fleeing, looting, or cowering in terror. One place which received special attention from looters was the city's Jewish district, which citizens were forced to defend themselves in the interregnum between Ottoman and Italian rule. The next morning, 1,700 Italian marines made landfall. These were the only troops available to the Italian forces until mobilization was complete. If the Ottoman commander, Nasat Bey, would have been made privy to this fact, he might have been able to annihilate the Italian beachhead altogether. As it stood, however, his men held a defensive line at Bu Meliana. This position was crucial, as it allowed control over several wells, which held a large portion of the fresh water in the area. The marines fanned out to the outskirts of Tripoli, and with the support of naval firepower, cleared Bu Meliana, forcing Ottoman forces to retreat to the mountain stronghold of Gerien. On the same day as bombs fell over Tripoli, a small landing force of 500 marines marched unopposed onto Brook and captured it without firing a shot. Meanwhile, Italian forces around Tripoli held the city precariously without reinforcements for nearly a week. General Polio urgently pieced together an army corps of 44,000 men. With the two main cities of Tobruk and Tripoli under Italian control, focus shifted to other coastal targets, namely Derna. This city and its countryside are home to some of the most fertile plains in all of Libya. The Ottoman garrison was determined to hold this city. Italian naval guns turned their barrels on the town. Within 30 minutes, Derna ceased to exist, but the Italians soon realized they'd created a defender's playground. Every broken structure and burrowed hole became a fortress. Italian attacks were repulsed by determined Ottoman resistance. After repeatedly repulsing the Italians... Ottoman forces felt it prudent to withdraw, leaving the rubble to landing marines. As this offensive occurred, a similar attack was made on Homs. After an initial bombardment, the city was abandoned, and Italians claimed this vital coast town as their own. The most dangerous of these attacks ended up being against Benghazi. Italian forces attempted a contested amphibious assault. The weather was poor, but this aided the Italians, as they were able to land unopposed on the city's south and bring up artillery to support the infantry on the beach. 
Ottoman forces attempted to recapture the lost high ground, but they faced a dreadful bombardment from naval boats off the coast. Now it was the Italians' turn to advance. In the words of Charles Stevenson, quote, The objective was Burka, which was a town outside Benghazi, and the attack was to be made by advancing and thus holding the enemy between the shallow water and the marsh, whilst the second formation circles around the marsh and approached from the south, unquote. This attack succeeded, but it could not entrap Ottoman defenders who fell back on Benghazi and began a desperate defense. Naval guns began to shell the city, and after 20 minutes of devastating fire, the white flag was raised, and Benghazi was in Italian hands. The cost to the civilian population? Unknown. No one bothered to count the dead and dying. In spite of the city's surrender, the Ottoman army managed a midnight escape to the hills, where they would continue a harassing campaign. As of this moment... Every single Italian military objective was accomplished with very little material loss or loss of Italian life. The Italian expeditionary force was now intended to be a force of occupation. Attempts at dislodging Ottoman forces in the country's interior would prove incredibly difficult, as many in the army had no training in desert warfare. Additionally, Italian army uniforms were entirely inappropriate for their environment. Francis McCullough said of the uniforms, quote, It is a thick, gray, heavy material, quite hot enough for St. Petersburg at this time of year. It closely resembles the stuff used in Ulster for making heavy overcoats, unquote. Regardless of troop readiness, Italian forces settled down and formed a rough semicircle around Tripoli. Italian forces felt sure of the fact that they would not be attacked and that they held all the cards. Ottoman forces, meanwhile, used this downtime to organize and get ready to launch an offensive all their own. Nasat Bey consolidated his forces while seeking assistance from local tribesmen. This whole time, the Italian military command assumed that the Arab and Berber peoples they had inherited would show unwavering loyalty to their Italian occupiers. They never once thought that this largely Muslim population might protest being subjugated by Catholic colonizers. This proved an incredibly false notion. Located just behind Italian trench lines were a number of hamlets and villages dispersed along the oasis, which created what one traveler called a, quote, bewildering labyrinth, unquote. The Italians made no attempt to fortify this area in any major way. Along the southern part of the Italian line, the Ottomans launched faint attacks, which kept Italian forces preoccupied and lured them away from the area. On the morning of October 23rd, all hell broke loose. Ottoman infantry supported by irregular bands were camouflaged by the oasis. The Italians were so unprepared for an attack that adequate trench lines had not yet been dug. At close range, a murderous fire was unleashed on surprised Italians. One survivor of the coming fight said, quote, The Sedicini seemed to rise out of the earth on every side of us. Unquote. 
As Italian reinforcements were rushed forward, the villages and hamlets behind the Italian position rose up with the Ottoman attack. Historian Angelo del Boca writes, quote, The revolt involved men and women, old people and children, and it was as ruthless as any rebellion that mixed not only xenophobia but also religious fanaticism. The triggering event was the blameworthy behavior of the Italian Brasaglieri toward Arab women, unquote. In any event, the Brasaglieri defending Sherashat on the Italian left were soon overwhelmed by the Ottoman forces. Many Italian soldiers were nailed to palm trees and tortured as they died. Once Ottoman forces achieved this breakthrough, they fanned out behind Ottoman lines and attempted to roll up the Italian flank. They met stiff resistance from the Brasaglieri headquarters, which was properly fortified and defended by machine gun emplacements. Ottoman and tribal forces bypassed these fortifications and began cutting Italian communications. In the labyrinth that was suburban Tripoli, Arab tribesmen gathered in uncoordinated bands and caused havoc amongst reserve and reinforcing Italian units, making it difficult to attempt to coordinate a defense. In any case, Italian defenses held, but the toll it took on morale was evident. In the Battle of Sherashat, 500 Italians were killed and hundreds more were wounded. General Caneva, commanding the ground forces, felt betrayed by the population of Tripoli, and he ordered the inhabitants of the oasis disarmed and, quote, if necessary, punished, unquote. As Charles Stevenson writes, quote, what this translated to, in effect, was a house-to-house -house search of the oasis by detachments of soldiers and sailors. This turned into wholesale massacre of the Arab inhabitants of the oasis, unquote. Death stalked every Libyan who dared be seen by Italians. Thomas E. Grant, a witness, writes, quote, The two-mile ride to the cavalry barracks was a perfect nightmare of horrors. One had to pass a huddled mass of some fifty men and boys, who were yesterday herded into a small space enclosed by three walls, and there fired upon until no one was left alive. Unquote. The Italians would not allow themselves to be fooled again. What was passed off as a peaceful, quote unquote, civilizing occupation was actually genocide of the native Libyans and the destruction of their land and culture. Reinforcements were sent. Amongst them were nine aircraft. On October 25th, the Ottoman attack on Italian positions began again. Sherashat was home to more bitter fighting, but Italian reinforcements reacted quickly this time. Unfortunately for the Italians, this Ottoman thrust was a feint designed to draw them in. The main Ottoman offensive launched an attack against the Italian right and center. The weak point here was around a two-story building to the west of the Italian right flank. The Ottomans used an ingenious solution to terrify superstitious Italians. Before the attack, Arab soldiers wrapped twine around a bush and paid a local boy to pull it on their signal, 
This shaking bush was, quote, fired on for six hours, literally blowing the jungle away and leaving the Italians without ammunition, unquote. This is when the Ottoman attack commenced in earnest. They devastated the Italian garrison which was defending the building. Charging in with scimitars drawn, many Italians were skewered or cut to pieces in their sleep. These attackers fanned out behind Italian positions once more, but they were once again stymied by artillery from both land and sea. They would keep fighting to the death for two days straight. Nesat Bey was unable to capitalize on this breakthrough, as attempts to reinforce his isolated men were met with a withering crossfire. To counter the increasing activity behind the lines, Italian officers resorted to tactics they used during the Brigand War to pacify recalcitrant southern Italians. Charles Stevenson writes that one officer, quote, collected together some 30 to 40 Arab inhabitants from their houses, including women and children and the elderly, and put them at the head of his column, unquote. The killing of civilians had not ceased since the start of the invasion, but following this last attack, Italians intensified their campaign of terror. All of the men and most of the boys who inhabited the western part of the oasis were systematically shot by roving bands of bloodthirsty Italians. Then, on October 26th, General Caneva ordered a retreat to a shorter defensive line. This retreat caused more psychological damage to Italian morale. As the Italians abandoned their position, they lost the vital access they had to fresh water. It now had to be imported from Sicily for the civilians and military alike. Arab militiamen and Ottoman regulars reoccupied the oasis and they came upon the mass of rotting bodies of their countrymen. In one account, W.T. Stead, a war correspondent on the Ottoman side, wrote, quote, We found a mosque filled with the bodies of women and children, mutilated almost beyond recognition. I could not count them, but there must have been three or four hundred. In our civilization and times, you can hardly believe it, but it is nevertheless true, unquote. Unfortunately, little has changed since then. The Italian government was busy denying all culpability for the massacres, going as far as to claim it was a complete fabrication. They would continue to tell this lie until 2009. Meanwhile, Arabic people across the planet were enraged as they learned of the women and children slain and watched as the international community did nothing to stop it. During the October massacres, as many as 15,000 Libyan civilians were killed, thousands were deported to far-off Mediterranean island prisons, and the entire population was in a state of absolute shock. Reinforcements swiftly mobilized back in Italy. Italian troops now numbered over 85,000, and by the end of November, that number increased to 90,000. Amongst these were 4,000 Alpini, who, contrary to their name, were adept desert fighters, having served and fought in Eritrea and Ethiopia. These reinforcements were sent with the hope of quickly resolving the conflict before another major power became involved and brokered a peace. 
any peace by such means would be considered an affront to Italian honor and prestige by the nationalists and jingos back in Italy. To avoid such an intrusion by Germany or France, Italy proclaimed a formal annexation of Tripoli and Cyrenaica on November 5th. Libya was now considered as Italian as Tuscany. This was an absolute affront to international diplomatic standards, even for the time, but little protest was lodged. Once more, the fear of alienating Italy caused most major powers to bite their tongue rather than risk antagonizing Europe's perpetual little brother. In fact, Britain made a point to order Lord Kitchener to stop the flow of contraband and weapons from Egypt and Sudan. Ottoman officers and men had to be covertly smuggled across the border. This was done under the auspices of the Teskelat-i-Mahusa, or the Special Organization. This intelligence gathering force would become instrumental in perpetrating the Armenian Genocide. One such officer who snuck across the border was Enver Pasha. His influence in Turkish politics was extreme, and his inertia was felt right away in Libya. Enver and Mustafa Kemal were leagues ahead of anything Italian military schools could produce. They both used the vast knowledge they acquired fighting counterinsurgency campaigns and applied the same tactics they had once fought against. In their struggle against the Italian armed forces, they were supported by the religious political movement of the Senussi. Founded by Muhammad bin Ali al-Sunusi, it started as a proselytizing effort amongst the Bedouin peoples of what is today a variety of North African states. Charles Stevenson said, quote, Its rationale was to restore the original purity of Islam and to guide adherents towards a better understanding of it. It soon advanced towards being a political movement. It would be a misrepresentation to consider it fanatical or reactionary, unquote. The Senussi were quickly mobilizing military units to fight against the invader. Writing of the movement, Hans Vischer says, quote, I have seen the hungry fed and the stranger entertained, and have myself enjoyed the hospitality and assistance enjoyed by the laws of the Quran. My own experience among the Senussi lead me to respect them as men and to like them as true friends, whose good faith helped me more than anything to accomplish my journey in spite of all difficulties. Unquote. Under Senussi leadership, 1.5 million Arab tribesmen, alongside a smaller number of Berber, Sub-Saharan, and Tureg tribes, swore allegiance to this movement. These peoples fell under the umbrella term Bedouin. Under pressure from Ottoman leadership, the head of the Senussi declared a holy war, or jihad, against the Italians on January 23, 1912. The cheap, short colonial war which was promised was not coming to fruition. Charles Stevenson says Ottoman forces endeavored to wage a campaign of, quote, attritional, unconventional warfare. Ottoman strategy was then dictated by a mix of Italian predominance at sea, the neutrality of the great powers, and Italian conventional military strength and the enclaves it held. Italian strategy was constrained by its inability to come to grips with the main body of the enemy, unquote. Again and again, Italian offensives ended lacklusterly, 
while Ottoman defense proved superb, especially when supported by Arab irregular forces on the flanks. As minor victories were scored, a grisly discovery was uncovered by the Italian army. In a garden, three Italians had been crucified. Upon further inspection, a pile of 26 Italian bodies were discovered, each corpse more mutilated than the last. The most grisly scene was the body of a Bersaglieri, who had his eyes sewn open, his hands chopped off, and was castrated. His face was a vision of horror. Atrocity fueled atrocity, and hate fueled hate. Throughout the 18th and 19th centuries, experiments in aviation were occurring throughout continental Europe. As previously discussed, two Austrian brothers are accredited with the first known use of military aviation, using balloons to carry explosives intended for the Republic of Venice in 1849. Following unification, Italian engineers were at the forefront of design in lighter-than-air aircraft. In 1908, the Italian balloon detachment added a dirigible to their growing fleet. The following year, an airplane of entirely Italian design took off in Turin, but the experimental design was only partially successful. The Wright brothers were brought in to collaborate with Italian aeronautic engineers, and they became instrumental in training and teaching early Italian pilots. In 1911, the first airplane flotilla, commanded by Captain Carlo Piazza, arrived in Tripoli. On October 22nd, the first combat reconnaissance by plane began. On October 25th, Italian pilots were the first to ever come under anti-aircraft fire. The biggest problems, however, were the desert conditions. Charles Stevenson writes, quote, Treacherous and unpredictable air currents and sandstorms made such an enterprise innately hazardous. Unreliability and fragility of the first airplanes and their engines only served to multiply the problems. Unquote. On November 1, 1911, Giulio Gavotti dropped four crude bombs on enemy positions at Zara and Tagliura. These had little effect. Most shells sunk into the deep sand before exploding, so only direct hits were truly effective. War had moved from the sea and land into the air. The ignominious beginning of air bombing was tallied. All the preponderance of Italian firepower was brought to bear at Ein Zara, where the Italians planned to overwhelmingly advance and destroy Ottoman forces there. The fight at Ein Zara was described by Charles Wellington Furlong, quote, It is a land of shifting sand dunes, into which the narrow boots of the Italian soldiers sink deeply. Sand dunes average 30 feet, and which are sometimes 10 times as high. The columns of the Italian army of invasion can't deploy or spread out in order. The men in front are picked off as they come up on the Arabs who lurk behind the dunes or bury themselves in the sand. No artillery larger than a three-pounder or machine gun can be drawn. Food, water, and even fodder must be transported by the invading army. The Arabs take care that there is little in the oasis for the enemy to live on. All of the fruit and vegetables are taken away 
and dead camels or mules are thrown into the wells to pollute the enemy's water supply. Unquote. The Ottoman and Arab defenders were vastly outnumbered and clearly outgunned. The Italians would attempt to envelop Ottoman positions, but Ottoman forces would retreat farther into the desert. Unfortunately for them, in their retreat, they left behind most of the artillery they possessed. The Alpini led the flanking movement, carrying their artillery pieces on the backs of donkeys, who could more effectively move the guns at a rapid pace. This forced the Ottoman army into a general retreat. It was a strategic victory for Italy, and Ayanzara could now be used as a forward base. However, the vast majority of the Ottoman army remained intact. They would retreat to Suai ben Adem, and were still able to threaten Italian positions. Italian focus shifted to the few remaining coastal towns still nominally under Ottoman control. Meanwhile, advances were made by independent groups of Arabs. The most crucial was at Bertabras. There, a column of 1,500 Italians were set upon by Arab tribesmen and a number of Ottoman regulars. Were it not for the cool-headedness of the Italian colonel in command, the entire column would have been wiped out. The Italian to Arab guides were left riddled with bullets. It was incorrectly assumed they were luring the Italians into a trap. Following this ambush, Italian authorities officially canceled plans for an advance deep into Libyan territory. At Geragesh, 3,000 Italians marched to disperse a small force of Arab tribesmen. An Ottoman force marched to meet the Italians, who were rapidly entrenching. They struck the Italian left and nearly cracked the entire position, but reinforcements saved the day. The Italians were in a state of shock, however, and withdrew only to return later. The Ottoman attack was led by Salima Bintamugis from the Nuwayil tribe in the western Tripolitanian desert. She was called the Arab Joan of Arc by journalists during this time. Writing of her conduct in battle, Alan Ostler says, quote, She carried no weapon but a staff of olive wood, and her voice rang high and shrill above the shouts and rattling rifle fire. The desert men swept up and over the earthworks, and their fearless leader, leaping into the trenches, stooped, plunged an arm elbow deep in blood, and then stood with a dripping right hand flung upwards. Unquote. Italian tactics of withdrawing once things got tough were terrible for their men's morale. During the same time, Italian forces in Derna lost control of the vital fresh water supply and they needed to begin importing water from Italy to survive. As the new year began, 1912 was proving as inconclusive as 1911 for Italian armies in Libya. One innovation of Italian arms was the use of fiat lorries, which became a dependable desert vehicle. These were further outfitted with armor and weaponry, including a Vickers Maxim machine gun, it was used in the push on Zanzor in June of 1912. Askari African troops from Eritrea made up the bulk of the attacking force. The overwhelming firepower they used easily cleared Turkish resistance in the coastal village. Alongside these new motor vehicles, airships were deployed to further bolster Italian reconnaissance and power projection. 
These meager victories against a few hundred-odd Ottoman regulars and their Arab counterparts did little to soothe public perception that Italy was having severe difficulties in Africa once more. The conflict was becoming exorbitantly expensive, as Italian troops in the former Vilayet were increased to over 100,000. Back in Italy, save for a few anarchist and socialist papers, journalists remained generally supportive of the war. However, one of the loudest anti-war voices ended up being Benito Mussolini. His vocal and outspoken criticisms of the war even landed him in jail. Once he became Il Duce, he did all he could to cover up his past life. With a clear stalemate reigning in Libya, the Italian government turned to other areas of the Ottoman Empire to attack, namely the Dodecanese Islands and the coast of modern-day Lebanon. With rumors floating of a possible Italian offensive there, Ottoman forces were increased across the major islands. Russia tacitly supported Italian aims in the islands as a means of hurting Ottoman naval power in the area. In Lebanon, Ottoman naval elements attempted to bait the Italians into an incident which could rouse French support. An Ottoman ironclad was fired on by the Italians, and many claims were made that the Italians fired on Beirut City. These claims turned out to be false, but some stray rounds struck the city and killed 30 civilians while wounding another 100. This elicited anger from the population of Beirut, they hunted the city streets for anyone who they thought to be Italian. As naval action moved close to Istanbul, Ottoman officials said they would mine the Straits of the Dardanelles if there was any movement by Italian vessels nearby. Italian designs first pointed to Stampalia, an island in the Aegean Sea which is called Astapalea today. Before attacks against this island commenced, the Italian navy endeavored to destroy their Ottoman counterparts. When Italian units approached the straits, Ottoman forces scurried to the safety of their coastal fort defenses. Ottoman authorities quickly responded and closed the straits to any and all shipping. Austria and Britain lodged serious complaints against Italy, the former saying another attack around the Dardanelles would result in, quote, grave consequences, unquote. The Italians backed down once more, rather than face the ire of an ally and the British giant, and the straits were reopened. On April 23rd, Stampalia was occupied and a new phase of the war began. The next Italian attack would be against the island of Rhodes, an Ottoman possession since the 16th century. 9,000 men were assembled to overrun the island's defenses they would be up against a sizable Ottoman garrison. Landing unopposed due to a successful misinformation campaign, Italian units quickly advanced into the heart of Rhodes City. Those Ottoman forces, which did not scatter in the face of the Italian advance, met around the village of Pacinthos in order to mount some sort of resistance. Around the broken ground, Ottoman forces fought bravely, but they were in a hopeless position. In total, 1,300 Ottomans surrendered. The Battle for Rhodes was an impactful military feat, and it is now considered one of the most successful feats of Italian arms in their entire post-unification history. Both navy and army worked together to surprise the enemy and then overwhelm them. Greek citizens rejoiced, and for the moment, 
they welcomed the Italians as liberators. They would soon realize they would not be returning to the Greek fold, and instead they would remain a part of Italy until World War II. Back in Libya, the stalemate continued with one noticeable exception. Italian forces were intent on taking Misrata, one of the most important commercial hubs in all of Libya save for Tripoli. The fight for the town and its environs was fierce, but Italian preponderance proved overwhelming once again. Following the capture of Zuara in June, the entire coastline of Tripoli province was in Italian hands. The use of amphibious warfare by Italy was impressive for the time. Charles Stevenson says, quote, Various feints and ruses were an essential part of it, unquote. These feints protected landing parties who had no specially designed landing craft. Whenever Italians met stiff resistance on a landing, they simply abandoned it, sure of the fact that their naval guns would harass any advancing enemies. In some cases, the Ottomans used ruses of their own to coax Italians off their boats. The best example of this was at Susa in Cyrenaica, eastern Libya. Enver Pasha wrote of the defense of the town, quote, A native of Derna that served the Italians as a spy was put ashore to ask the Bedouin around to a meeting with the Italians. The local Bedouin chiefs agreed to meet. Some Italians left the ships and came to the beach in boats. They were immediately put under a heavy fire and flew headlong back to their boats, unquote. As the invasion of the Dodecanese Islands occurred, a massive uprising broke out in Albania, and it proved largely successful. The Sultan was forced to give way and grant concessions to Albanian nationalists. These concessions deeply angered Serbian nationalists, who considered the areas granted Albanian autonomy to be a part of their country. Meanwhile, Montenegro, Greece, and Bulgaria all had their own claims to land, which was currently part of the Ottoman Empire. Bilateral agreements were quickly signed between these various powers, and a coalition was rapidly forming against European Ottoman lands. The dreaded Balkan conflagration, which endangered a century of peace in Europe, was about to break out. In this way, Charles Stevenson argues, quote, Giolitti was directly responsible for setting in train events that led to the First World War. Unquote. In Turkey, successive governments fell, which precipitated a constitutional crisis and eventually a coup initiated by the military. In July, the secret Balkan alliance was discovered by Ottoman officials. The Sultan and his government rapidly endeavored to end hostilities with Italy. They succeeded in getting Giolitti's government to cease hostilities in the Aegean and the Dodecanese Islands. However, the scale of offensives in Libya only increased. Italian politicians saw an end to the war, but commanders on the ground were dreadfully slow in their advances. This was especially true in Cyrenaica, where Enver Pasha was showing his tactical skill in repeated sorties and defenses. Enver was under no illusions, however. He wrote, quote, These battles have no influence on the outcome of the war. Unquote. Italian forces were moving dreadfully slow in the face of determined native opposition to their occupation. Francis McCullough wrote, quote, A glance at the map of Tripolitania will show that at their present rate of progress, 
the Italians will take about 50 years to get to Guerriere, which was the main Ottoman base to the south, unquote. Charles Stevenson concludes, quote, Fortunately for the Italians, at least they did not have to wait until 1963 to get the Ottoman Empire to agree to terms, unquote. The biggest obstacle to peace lay with each government not wanting to sign a humiliating peace. This was especially true for Italy, and when Ottoman officials walked away from negotiations to discuss their options in private, Giolitti basically said, I'm telling mom. He went to the other great powers and told them that if the Ottomans did not negotiate with Italy, here and now, Italy would be forced to broaden the conflict and attack the Balkans or Turkey directly. This was a complete lie, but the other world powers fell over each other to demand the Ottomans return to the negotiating table. On October 8, 1912, as negotiations continued, Montenegro declared war on the Ottoman Empire. The next day, the other members of the Balkan League, Bulgaria, Greece, and Serbia, threw their hats in the ring, and the First Balkan War began. Meanwhile, the war between the Turkish state and Italy came to a close on the 15th of October. The separate agreements reached between Turkish and Italian diplomats were the cause of much controversy in their immediate aftermath. First, the Sultan granted the Vilayets of modern-day Libya complete autonomy. Next, the Kingdom of Italy formally annexed Libya. The Italians granted, quote, full and entire amnesty, unquote, to the inhabitants who had resisted, and those currently in detention were promised their freedom. Additionally, the islands which Italy controlled in the Aegean Sea were promised to be returned to the Ottoman Empire after Ottoman forces had left Libya. Finally, Italy agreed to pay a large indemnity to the Ottomans, which made many Italian nationalists balk. In the Italian proclamation to the inhabitants of Libya, it read, quote, Know that great Italy, after having conquered your mother Tripoli, has become your father. Unquote. With such a statement to begin your rule of a country, is it a wonder why peace did not last? In Libya, the Italian occupiers completely underestimated the clause in the Treaty of Auchi, which stipulated that the Sultan was still allowed to nominally appoint judges so that Sharia law was still enforced. Under these terms, many Libyans still believed that they were a part of the Ottoman Empire. Throughout the war between the Ottoman Empire and the Kingdom of Italy, about 4,000 Italians were killed in action or died from exposure. Another 8,000 were wounded. The financial cost was exorbitant, with nearly 50% of the state's budget going toward the war effort. The numbers for the Ottoman side are as high as 8,000 killed in combat or from exposure and tens of thousands of Libyan civilians were killed in Italian reprisals. As war spread throughout the Balkans, the people of the Dodecanese watched sadly as the Greek navy swamped the Aegean and liberated many Greek-identifying islands. Italy argued obstinately that the promised withdrawal of Ottoman forces was not occurring, so the Italian flag was there to stay. Alex Rappas writes, quote, 
Within a year of their occupation, the Italians had introduced martial law, prohibited assemblies, forbidden the display of the national symbol of Greece, meddled in the affairs of the local Orthodox Church, and deported some of the most vocal champions of union with Greece. Unquote. It was true, many Ottoman forces were still fighting in Libya. They fought on the side of tens of thousands of Muslim militia, Mujahideen, who felt rightfully bewildered when peace was declared. Charles Stevenson wrote that they were fighting to, quote, continue their way of life, unquote. However, the Italian military was determined to crush dissent in the interior. They launched a massive military attack against an inland state which had been proclaimed following the peace. In Cyrenaica, the war changed shape but never truly ceased. Enver Pasha continued his fight for a time, but was compelled to return to Turkey to take up the fight in the Balkans. In May 1913, Sidi el-Garba was attacked by Italian troops, who unknowingly walked themselves into an ambush. This conflict, later called the Italo-Senussi War, was largely exacerbated by Italian decision-makers. The promise to release political prisoners still interred in the Mediterranean was not upheld. 1,410 of them were exiled in Tremiti. Before 1913 began, over 437 of them had perished. Beyond this, Italian occupation took on a brutality which was truly horrific. There were daily executions of men and boys in the Tripoli bread market. These acts of terror further bolstered the resolve of the native population to resist and launch the Great Arab Revolt in 1915. Archangelo Ghisleri said aptly, quote, This wretched war will bear fruits of ash and poison. It has already begun to bear them. The frenzy of the massacre, the debasement of human life, the exaltation of savagery will have their repercussions in the homeland. Unquote. This revolt would prove so successful that the Italian government would be forced to recognize Senussi independence in 1917, but the Italians would be back before long. Criticism of the barbarity of Italian overlordship was not limited to socialist and left-leaning circles. Gerardo Pantano was lieutenant colonel in the Italian army and would soon become a lieutenant general during the Great War. He wrote, quote, Our officers do not know how to distinguish between friends and foes, those who we should fight and those we should protect. They tell you with pleasure amazing things. Arabs found seriously injured are covered in gasoline and burned or thrown into wells. There are others who systematically prey on non-rebels, thus feeding Senussi propaganda. I cannot understand why our officers display such blind ferocity, so much thirst for blood, and so refined a cruelty. We take revenge on Arabs for our errors, our retreats, and the checks we suffer, unable to avenge ourselves on those who obtain conspicuous results with such little means. We vent our frustration on the weak and helpless." Unquote. Back in Italy, patriotic celebrations accompanied the peace between the kingdom and the Ottoman Empire. 
Underneath these celebrations were damning societal ruptures. In 1912, Mussolini's extremist faction of militant socialists won in the party conference. Meanwhile, the church was formally banning Catholics from celebrating in Turin. In 1913, Giolitti dissolved Parliament and wished to rework his majority with another rigged election. Of the many different parties on the ballot, constitutional parties only received 56% of the vote, while an indiscriminate mix of right- and left-wing revolutionary parties increased their representation substantially. Giolitti had the supreme power he wanted, but in the words of Dennis Mack Smith, he was now, quote, the most unpopular man in the country. As World War I began in Europe between the great powers, Italy remained decidedly neutral at first. Austria had not taken the necessary steps to inform their Italian allies as to their war intentions with Serbia. Therefore, Italy had no official obligation to support Austria or Germany. Many Italians concluded, Giolitti amongst them, that neutrality was the only way to keep the Italian state intact without suffering severely from a European war. Early in 1914, Giolitti handed the king his resignation and advised him to appoint the center-right politician and history professor Antonio Salandra. Giolitti believed this man would be another ineffectual stopgap on the road to a renewed government under him. In reality, Dennis Mack Smith says, quote, Salandra proved to be an ambitious gambler who was ready to break free from Giolitti's system and throw Italy into a crippling war. In June, Salandra's government nearly collapsed before he could put his plans in motion. The entire country exploded in what history remembers as Red Week. This was a massive strike which gripped most of the country, as the main cities devolved into revolutionary violence between police and syndicalists. In response, landlords and businessmen formed loose militias and stalked the land. Several republics were declared, and 100,000 men needed to be mobilized to end the insurrection. War came as a shock to Italy and the initial German advances into France nearly compelled Italian involvement on the Kaiser's side. However, Italy had severe economic woes with which to contend if it chose to support Germany. Italy received 90% of its coal from Great Britain. Additionally, a blockade of the Italian coast would be devastating to the country. Great Britain and France had more to offer Italy monetarily than Austria and Germany did. On numerous occasions, Austria balked at the thought of giving land to Italy willingly. Instead, they offered concessions in French Tunisia, Nice, and British Malta. The French and British were offering much more. The Trentino, Istria, parts of the Dalmatian coast, and Trieste. War fever in Italy was being pushed by French capital. One place French money found itself often was in the hands of Benito Mussolini. He had made a remarkable about-face in regards to war. Now he claimed to be a hardcore interventionist. This stunning turnaround made him a pariah in the Socialist Party, and he was officially expelled. He would begin a far-right newspaper, Il Popolo d'Italia, where he would wax poetic on the virtues of war, death, and conquest. 
Meanwhile, Solandra courted both sides of the conflict, attempting to run up the price of Italian involvement. He finally decided to throw his lot in with the Entente. This course was chosen following massive Russian victories in Carpathia. In May 1915, riots in support of interventions swept the country. These were largely manufactured by Salandra's government. Gabriel D'Annunzio was in Rome and had secret information about the Treaty of London before most members of Parliament were even made aware of them. He shouted from the piazza, quote, Italy shall be greater by conquest, purchasing territory not in shame, but at the price of blood and glory. No, we are not, and do not want to be just a museum, a hotel, a vacation resort, a market where things are bought and sold. Our genius demands that we should put our stamp on the molten metal of the new world. Comrades, it is no longer a time for speeches, but for action, and for action after the high Roman fashion." Unquote. The king had granted his approval of a war policy. Neutralists were assaulted in the street by thugs paid by Salandra, and the Journal of Italy claimed Giolitti and his neutralist colleagues were being paid off by Germany. On May 23, 1915, Italy declared war on Austria-Hungary. Conspicuously, it did not declare war on Germany. The writers of Caporetto and the Isonzo campaign say, quote, The declaration of war opened a 375-mile front on Italy's northern and eastern borders. Unquote. This war would bring horrors unimaginable, as well as the deaths of millions. This would also become the field in which fascism would begin to flourish. To hear the story of Italy in World War I and the initial rise of the fascist party under Benito Mussolini, the douche of all Italians, you'll have to wait until the next episode of Turning Tides. Hey everyone, thank you all so much for listening to our first episode of the new year. I'm so happy to bring this to you all. Discovering the harrowing story of the Italian occupation of Libya was a revelation to me as a historian. In Italy, it has been purposefully erased from the official record, but the plight of Libyans during Italian colonization was real. By the time occupation was finally over, the Libyan people were devastated, herded into concentration camps, and forced to watch their rebel leaders publicly executed. Their story is not told, which is common with resistance movements, especially successful ones. But under the leadership of men like Omar Mukhtar, Libyans proved that a determined people could withstand any injustice and find a way to live. In 1981, there were attempts to show this story to the world in the form of the film, The Lion of the Desert. For its faults, it tells the true story of Omar Mukhtar, 73-year-old Iman and freedom fighter, and his eventual capture and execution by Italian authorities. This film was officially banned in Italy for, quote, being disrespectful to the Italian armed forces, unquote. It would not be broadcast in Italy until 2009, when Silvio Berlusconi's government formally apologized and admitted that what happened in Libya was genocide. I would recommend this movie to you all and postulate that if you find the truth disrespectful, 
Perhaps you shouldn't have acted disrespectfully in the first place. Thank you all again. I'm your host, Joseph Pascone. If you like what you heard today, you can support us by donating on PayPal at Turning Tides Podcast One. Thanks for the support and thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard, we'd really appreciate it if you take the time to rate and review Turning Tides on whatever platform you use to listen and share the show on social media. It really helps us to bring the show to more listeners. Thank you guys so much. Thank you to everyone for listening. We'd also like to say thank you to Movo Photo. We use their sound equipment for this podcast, as well as all of our other projects at Antics Entertainment. They make great equipment at great prices, and we really appreciate that they make content creating so accessible for indie creators like us. Check them out on social media at Movo Photo, M-O-V-O, P-H-O-T-O. Thank you again.